You can turn your Bibles again to book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22 this morning, and that's the last one in the book of Revelation. But if you were paying attention in the uh, scripture reading, there's still a little bit of ground to cover. A lot of, a lot of important topics in these last uh, concluding verses. And I tell you, <laughs> you read those last few verses, that ought to get to your get your attention there. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. If they're... Uh, for a Bible teacher, this ought to be something that every one, every person who teaches the Bible ought to have this highlighted or something. Ought to be in our minds. Because I don't think those verses apply only to the book of Revelation. I think it applies to the Scriptures uh, in general and ought to inform our our opinions of how to interpret the things that we that we find here. I ought to do it carefully and cautiously and allow the Word to speak for itself. Heaven forbid that we speak for, for God. Let Him be the, the author and we try to figure out what He's saying to us. <laughs> and with that, when we come to Revelation 22, we see the life and light of God himself being described by this angel to John. And John, in turn, writes it down to try to describe these things the best way that he knows how to us, try to give us a picture of the incredible future that we have with the Lord. This Revelation 22, 21 and 22, probably one of the most glorious passages in all of the Bible and really serves as a motivation for us in the Christian life today, I'm convinced that's why these things are in our Bibles, not just so that we can show off to our friends about how knowledgeable we are because we know what the seven heads of the beast mean and all of these kinds of things. Uh, it's important, but all of it is to, sh to give us a motivation for living today because of what God is going to do for us in the future. And one of the incredible truths of the universe is that Jesus Christ is life and light. In Sunday school this morning, we saw wisdom personified, and I mentioned that a lot of commentators will say that, well, this is Jesus Christ because he is the truth and he is wisdom and it is true. He is the very personification of these things, but he's also so much more than just that. He's also life and light. He contains it within himself because of who he is. And we see that being described here for us today in Revelation 22, making our way to the very end here of the book. We've come a long way. Uh, obviously seen all of the, the events that God wants us to know about anyway, having to do with the tribulation period that is still uh, yet future, hasn't started yet, will be in the future, a period of seven years that is essentially 
driving the nation of Israel, if you'll remember, to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. When they do that, he will come again. When they call on him, he will come again and establish his kingdom upon the earth for a thousand years. And then we will move into what we have been studying the last few weeks, what we call the eternal state on the new heavens and the new earth with this new Jerusalem, this place where we will dwell with God forever in a life that is the way that he originally intended it to be. God's plan for this world is kind of uh, multi-stage, if you will. God is, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before or thought about it, but God is very complex being. <laughs> he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, uh, we can't possibly know everything there is to know about him, certainly in this life. We will, we will know him better when we are with him. We will be like him. We're not going to be the same as him, but we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. And that's what John is describing here a little bit, the way that Jesus and God actually are in life and light. And there's a, there's a big problem that stands as a barrier to us in enjoying that today, and that is the problem of sin. But as we have seen, God is dealing with that problem, and it's a multi-step process for that to happen. Uh, one of those uh, steps in the process was Christ going to the cross and dying for the sins of the world. And then he said that he would return back to the Father. The Father dwells in heaven, the third heaven, as we have seen. That, that's never going to be destroyed. Uh, this earth and these stars that we see, like I heard people talking about the moon and the planets that are so visible in the sky these last few months, it's incredible, it's miraculous, the, the beauty of the night sky, all that's going to disappear one day in the future. And God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth that's even better than the one that we live on today, if you can imagine that. I've been, uh, I'm sure, well, I guess I'm not sure, but the Tour of Italy bike race has been going on, the Giro, if you're a cyclist, uh, has been going on these last few days. They've been in the mountains of Italy, the Alps in Italy, the Dolomites, and you see this on TV, and it just, it is breathtaking. It is other otherworldly, I've said to, to Suzanne. It's just like you're looking at something foreign. Uh, it's so marvelous and majestic and just incredible. And uh, people are riding their bikes up these mountains. And uh, the new heaven and the new earth will be even better. So don't worry, you know, we read about the mountains slipping into the sea. We sang about that and there's no ocean. And, you know, oh, I love the ocean. What are we? I love going to the beach. What are we going to do? It's going to be better. Trust me, it's going to be even better than this world that we are living in today. And the number one reason why is because sin is going to be dealt with. There will be no sin and no effects of sin in this eternal state in which we are going to live with God forever. But again, there's a lot of steps before we get there. Book of Revelation describes to us the end process to get to this eternal state, and primarily it's concerned with seven years of tribulation. Uh, 
Then Christ will come again. Then he will establish his kingdom on this earth because he's going to be victorious over Satan, who uh, was kind of the cause behind the scenes of why we're in the mess that we're in. He led Adam and Eve into sin and, uh, you know, kind of defeated God, if you will, because sin was introduced into the creation. It was never supposed to be here. But God, since the foundation of the world, before creation, already knew what was going to happen. He's had this multi-layered plan in place that we have seen over these last few weeks to gain victory over Satan in the kingdom and then have a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no sin and we will live with him forever in this city, the new Jerusalem. Now, will we be able to leave this city? Is this, is this it? Is this where we're going to be for eternity? Uh, there are gates, so there's a description of people going in and out of the gates. So I, yeah, probably, I'm not exactly sure. The Bible doesn't give us tons of details about those kinds of those kinds of things that just is describing this majestic place where we're going to live. Part of God's plan, as we've seen, is the nation of Israel. They will have their the names of the 12 tribes are going to be inscribed on the gates to this new Jerusalem. Israel has kind of come back into focus in the book of Revelation since about chapter 6, if you'll remember. The first four chapters first three chapters have the word church over and over and over. There are letters to churches in that opening, those opening pair, uh, chapters of Revelation. And then we haven't seen that word again until we get to Revelation 22, where it's mentioned again, the church specifically is mentioned, these let, this letter to the churches it's supposed to go out to is mentioned again. Uh, the 12 apostles are mentioned back in Revelation 21. We saw them being mentioned. Their names are on the foundation stone. So church has not played a role in any of this that we've been uh, learning about here, really, this tribulation period specifically. They, they weren't there. And as we've seen there's a reason for that that's because they are taken out of this world before this tribulation period begins the only place that a church could be taken to is back to the father's house where god lives according to jesus's own words he's coming to to take us out of this world back to the father's house and we know from the book of Revelation, laying out a sequence of events for us to go back to the Father's house means that it has that has to happen sometime before this thousand-year kingdom and definitely before this eternal state uh, to take place. It has to happen before then because that that's uh, we know that there are other events that take place. Uh, this tribulation period. If Christ has to come again before we are living with him forever for us to go into the Father's house because there's still a thousand-year kingdom to come. Kind of a convoluted way of saying there's a pre-tribulation rapture. <laughs> That's what we 
believe. That's what everyone who uh, adheres to a consistent, literal interpretation of the Bible, the only conclusion you can come to is that that event happens before the uh, tribulation comes to the earth. But God still has a plan. He still has promises that he has to fulfill to the nation of Israel. Those will be fulfilled in this kingdom period, this thousand-year kingdom period where Israel will have a land, a seed, and a blessing. They will have a, a nation. They will have, they will have a physical land. They will have a ruler ruling over them, Jesus Christ, and they will have people there who have trusted in him, have their sins forgiven to live in this righteous kingdom. All that is going to take place. God's word will be fulfilled when they trust in him, and that will take seven years of tribulation judgments for that to happen, and then he will come again for them. And we'll have the thousand-year kingdom. At the end of the thousand-year kingdom, there will be a great white throne judgment, and then we will move into this eternal state that we have been learning about. And today in Revelation 22, we'll see life and light in Christ. We'll see the produce, the presence, and the perpetuity, or this uh, fruit that is going to grow on the tree of life. We'll look at that. We'll look at the very presence of God and Christ being here in this place where we will be, and that it's going to last forever. When it uh, begins to take place, it will move into eternity. We begin with the produce. Notice Revelation 22 and verse 1. It says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." That little word there, the first little word that opens up the uh, chapter in verse 1, then we've seen it over and over and over again, and there's a reason for that. God repeats things that he wants us to understand. There, This book is a sequence of events. It is very largely chronological in the way that it's laid out. It is laying out a series of future events that will happen in order. And we saw, of course, that there were breaks in that chronology. There were times when the chronology doesn't advance, but that, that uh, we're seeing a description of more details concerning what has just taken place. Sometimes it looks forward to what's going to happen in the future in those uh, chronological breaks. It's kind of like a hockey game. There's uh, you know, the intermission. They look back at the great plays, look forward to what's going to happen in the next period, and then that period happens and they do it again. Same kind of thing in the book of Revelation with these uh, what have been termed non-chronological parenthetical insertions in the, in the book of Revelation that describe more about what has happened. We, you can go back and look at some of those uh, various places where that took place. 
uh, in between, primarily in between the various sets of judgments. We have uh, the seal judgments, then a break in the chronology. You have the trumpet judgments, then a break in the chronology. Describe some of the things that are going on in that period of time. Uh, then the bull judgments after that. It, just the way that that God has revealed these things to us. And it's that is so critical for us to keep remember, keep in mind always that there that this book is a sequence of events that are taking place. It's not just a generic uh holy book that you go to and just pull things out of the context and and you know dream up your own interpretation. That's not the way that it's laid out at all. It's a, it is a sequence of future events telling us what is going to take place in the future. Uh, and that's why it's repeated to us over and over. Then this happened, then this happened, and next this will happen. Uh, and so we we need to inform our opinions about uh, the Word by what it says, not what our tradition will tell us or uh, what some church father supposedly thought about the book of of uh, Revelation. No, the apostles' teachings, we saw that last week, are the foundation for the church, Ephesians chapter 2. That's why their names are inscribed on the foundation stones for the eternal state, for this new Jerusalem, uh, because they're, the apostles' teaching is foundational to what we believe, not uh, what Augustine thought, uh, you know, honest, if I can be completely honest, I don't really care what Augustine thought. I care what the Bible says. And what he, when he says something that agrees with what the Bible says, that's fantastic. And it goes for any uh, teacher, any commentator and these kinds of things. When they are saying things that align with what the scriptures actually say, that's great. When they don't, mm, that's not that's not so great. What the text says is the most important uh, thing that we need to keep in mind. And John is an eyewitness to these things. This is something that he's repeated uh, throughout the book of Revelation. Then he showed me a river of the water of life. He's going to repeat that later in verse 8. I, John am the one who heard and saw these things. Keep in mind, this is, this is going to churches that were knew the Apostle John. This is, uh, John is the one that the Lord loved. He was a literal uh, apostle there with Jesus for three and a half years, writing this much later than that, probably about 60 years or so after Christ died. John is receiving this uh, revelation, if you will, uh, on the Isle of Patmos, about 60 years after Christ died. There's 60, 60 years. That's a pretty long time. I haven't even been alive that long. Uh, 54 years coming up here in a little while. Uh, that's longer than I've been alive since John was with the Lord that he's now writing this. There's a lot of history that goes on. We're reminded of that. We had a couple of events 
mentioned in the 60s and 70s. That's a long time ago. A lot's happened since then. These people knew John. They knew he was an apostle. He lived with the Lord. He was their pastor for a while in Ephesus, one of the churches that the letters are written to. So when he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, that has an impact uh, for them. They know who he is. And, and that is a reminder to us that this, this happened. This happened to the Apostle John. He is an eyewitness of these things. And what he's an eyewitness of here is this river of the water of life. He literally was allowed to see this future place where we will dwell with uh, the Lord for eternity. What an incredible day this was in the life of John that he was able to see these things. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. Now there is a lot of uh, symbology that uh, is being used here, symbolic language that is describing something literal. And that shouldn't, uh, that shouldn't get us too, too worried uh, as we've had a lot of uh, symbolic language throughout the book of Revelation. And that doesn't mean that it isn't describing literal Events. I got a, uh, yeah, I have to go back to this slide because this is where my notes are. Uh, these symbols are representing truths about future things. Doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Sim- we have symbols all the time and they represent something literal. Our flag is an example of a literal thing. I, there it is, right there. <laughs> Our flag is for the nation of the United States is a literal piece of cloth, but it has a lot of symbolic uh, attributes to it. It's not just, oh, stars are cool. Let's throw some of those on there and that kind of thing. They represent something. Uh, And Charles Thompson, who was the secretary of the Continental Congress uh, when he's reporting uh, about the... uh, flag, he says, the colors of the pales, that's uh, 1700s for the stripes that are on it, are those in the flag of the United States of America. White signifies purity and and innocence, red, hardiness, and valor. And blue, the color of the chief, or the uh, place where the stars go, the standard, it's sometimes called, signifies vigilance, perseverance and justice. All of the, even the colors have a symbolic representation of something. They are to remind us of something. The stars remind us of how many uh, states there were, 13 on the original flag, of course, because there are 13 colonies. So the, the flag is symbolic of something else, but it is, it's a literal thing that we have before us. The New Jerusalem is, is also has a lot of symbology that is there. Physical things that represent something else to our minds. But it's still a literal p- 
place. That is what is being described here, the literal place where we will live with God in perfect harmony forever. And that we saw last time was wrapped up in the angel giving the physical dimensions of this place, very much like the physical tabernacle and the physical temple that Israel had. God gave very specific directions about the dimensions of those places, how they should be built, what they should be built out of. All of that is symbolic of, uh, or much of it is symbolic of other truths about God, but it was a literal place. The new Jerusalem will be very much the same. And this river of the water of life, clear as crystal, is coming out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Water is life. It's uh, such, a, such an incredible uh, thing that we are very much out of touch with, rivers. And, you know, a, a lot of commentators or some commentators are going to say uh, that, oh, the river, this is just symbolic of the Holy Spirit and the salvation that we have and his role in salvation. And it, really, there's no justification <laughs> for that in the text, John is describing a literal place, but yes, there is a river there, and the river has symbolic value to it. And one of those is that water is life. We are, we are very much detached from uh, real life in the 21st century. And that's, a, that's an unfortunate thing. A lot of times uh, Jesus used agricultural uh, examples for people because they lived in an agricultural society, an agrarian society. And so he taught them uh, using these uh, various metaphors and these kinds of things because they would understand it. And so uh, when we see a, or see here a river of the water of life, we're detached from that a little bit because in the 21st century, we don't understand the importance of rivers in people's uh, lives. And so uh, same with agricultural examples. It's kind of unfortunate because our understanding of the Bible would be a lot better if we weren't so detached from these things. But rivers were literally life for people uh, bef- not really all that long ago. They needed to, to uh, live close by to rivers for a water source, for transportation, all kinds of reasons. We were just recently in Columbus, Georgia, and they have a lot of historical markers, even some right in downtown with the, the plaques that have all those boring words on them and you know stuff that Suzanne and I actually like to read. You can <laughs> find out some kind of interesting things if you just take some time and read those. Well, Columbus, Georgia was, for, was founded at the headwaters of the Chattahoochee River. Now, what what is the headwaters? What does that even mean? Well, they could. There's a bunch of rapids that were right there. A lot of rocks in the uh, in the Chattahoochee River, right where this city was founded in the 1800 early 1800s, I think it was. And the headwaters means that they could navigate on that river from this spot all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, and then therefore to the rest of the world from this little place. That's as far up this river as you could go and then uh, easily 
transport yourself down this river to the ocean. Ah, there's a good place for a city. Uh, and so they founded it there so they could get their goods from Georgia and Alabama out to the rest of the world from there. We passed through Cincinnati on our drive there and back, and there's a pretty big river there in uh, the Ohio River that goes over there. It's incredible how wide it is. And my uncle lives on the Ohio River still to this day. I absolutely loved going to his house. He stand up on this bank. It seemed like you're it seems like you're 200 feet in the air looking out over this incredible river and obviously an incredible source of transportation, energy. You can get, uh, you can get electricity from, from a river and all of these kinds of things. Uh, did you notice there's a river right over here where our city is founded right out our door? There's a river there, and the city is here because of that bend in the river they can uh, get, they can saw wood from the power of the river. They can float things down the river. Rivers are very important. Rivers are life. Grand Traverse. There's another uh, thing that has to do with rivers. There's a Grand Traverse Avenue in Flint. Why is that there? Because that's the place that you could walk across that river. That's the, very important for the Indians. It's very shallow there. They could easily get across that. And for the, the people who were living here, uh, the river was, a, was an incredible source of life. And so in the eternal state, it makes sense that there is a river of the water of life because the rivers are so important to people and to the world. And it, it, is a water, it is a river of the water of life because uh, obviously we need water to live. You can uh, normally, under normal circumstances, you can only live for about three days without water. You've got to have water to drink. And Jesus symbolically is the water of life. John 7, 37, now on the, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given and because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is why some commentators like to spiritualize the New Jerusalem and this river of the water of life because of John 7. A lot of problems come when you use only the Gospels to interpret your understanding of all of the Bible. It causes a lot of problems for us. Don't do that. <laughs> He's describing a literal place here. But Jesus, yes, is the water of life. And notice that it says in the NASB that this water is clear as crystal. Or uh, there's a note there that says that it's bright as crystal. But yes, not only is Jesus the water of life, but salvation itself, the reception of life, is clear as crystal. Could not be any more clear the Bible could not be in its statements about how a person receives the water of life. We even saw it there in John 7. 
If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, not only is it coming from Jesus's mouth, but Jesus quotes the scripture as the Bible tells you. He essentially says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And there's only one condition that is mentioned there by the Lord, how this will come to pass. And it is the condition of believing. He who believes in me will receive eternal life. Jesus earlier in the gospel of John, he had a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he described to him crystal clear how a person receives eternal life. One condition, believing. John 3, 18, he who believes in him is not judged. It's the point blank. There's no, there's no nothing else to be discussed. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Three times it tells us the condition. Believe. If you believe, you're not judged. If you don't believe, you will be judged. Why will you be judged? Because you didn't believe. Because you didn't believe. Believing is the way that we receive eternal life. John says in 1 John 5, 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not only is the way that we receive eternal life crystal clear, but the result of eternal life is perfect assurance of salvation. I, I hesitate to, uh, to use the... Uh, once saved, always saved, this kind of uh, doctrine of eternal life or whatever kind of other, uh, can't think of the exact term right now, but I like to talk about the assurance of our salvation because we have 100% assurance if we have believed. It's not just a, a distant kind of thing oh, all those who are saved are, are always saved. Once you have eternal life, or it, uh, eternal life means eternal, and these kinds of things. Yes, that is true, but that, that doesn't necessarily give you assurance because you can know that this subset of people has eternal life, but are you in that subset? Were you chosen? Are you one of the elect and these kinds of things? Well, you can know clear as crystal, you can know because you know in your heart what you are trusting in. And that is the key. That is the only requirement that God has. He doesn't have a, a set of, you got to belong to the right church. You have to say a certain number of prayers. You've got to give to the, to the church. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And you can't do these other things. That's for sure. No, there's, there's one condition, one requirement, and it is to trust in Christ. Trust, believe, put your confidence in, hope in, all of those uh, kinds of words mean the same thing. Understand that you are a sinner, that Christ is God and died for your sins, and I am not trusting in my denomination, my church, my parents, my this, that, or the other thing. I am trusting in Christ because he is the one who died 
for me and gives me eternal life. It is clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Salvation comes from God. There is an awful lot of symbology here. We don't conjure it up. Uh, We don't conjure up salvation. We didn't make the plan. God made the plan. It comes exclusively from him. He did all the planning. He did all the work. We trust in his plan. That's how we receive eternal life. It comes completely from God. And notice that there are some other things here, that this river of the water of life is in the middle of the street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now this can get kind of confusing and convoluted, and frankly, even in the in the Greek, it gets a little bit more confusing as to what is exactly being described here. Uh, so there, so if you can, I'm not sure what's in your mind, but uh, if you can picture with me this idea of a main street going down through this city, it doesn't mean that this is the only street that is there, but this is kind of the main attraction that John is describing here, there's a main street that goes through the New Jerusalem, and it's a boulevard, which means that it's kind of divided in in half. Uh, major cities have boulevards that typically it's one way this on this side and the other way on the other side, and there's something in the middle of it. And in the middle of this giant boulevard, main street in the New Jerusalem, is this river of the water of life. And then on either side of the river, still in the middle of the road, there are rows of trees. And these are the trees of life. Actually, I have up there trees of life. It is singular here in the text, but in other places, uh, it describes the trees of life in Ezekiel as multiple trees uh, is being described. And Furthermore, the way that the language is laid out in the original, it does give the impression that there are trees on both sides of the river. So it's not just one tree of life that somehow is on both sides of the river. Probably a a more clear way for us to see this is a boulevard with a river down the middle and trees lining both sides of that river. And those trees are the trees of life. And John describes it in one sentence. I just took about five minutes (laughs) to to describe that to you. That's probably why it's written the way that it was the most concise way uh, possible to describe uh, this incredible place where we are going to be. And the tree of life is there. God is returning life to the way it was originally supposed to be, the way he intended it to be, one of life and happiness and sinlessness. It's almost impossible for our minds to conceive of living in a way that is stress-free. This isn't a vacation to the beach, 
<laughs> this is something that that is nearly impossible for us to comprehend life without sin and its consequences a place of perfect perfect life earth is a place of death after sin entered into it it is a place of death and destruction and chaos and all of the horrendous things that we see going on in the world the kingdom so we move from that kind of earth into the kingdom period and that's kind of a transition period if you will for a thousand years where the the curse is having less of an effect upon the earth and upon our daily lives people literally live for a longer period of time uh, Isaiah says if you die during the kingdom period at 100 years old, you'll be considered like a child dying today or a young person dying today at 100. So people are going to live for a much longer extended periods of time, kind of like they did in early Genesis. We see people living for hundreds and hundreds of years, over 900 years, people living. So there's, there's great symmetry to the Bible. Adam and Eve created to live forever. Uh, they sin. They still live for hundreds of years, but they die. And those, those lifespans would get shorter and shorter and shorter until today, the Bible says, if you live 70 years, you're, you're doing pretty good. Uh, if you make it past 70. Uh, in the kingdom period, that's going to, again, start to be reversed where people will live for longer and longer periods of time until you get to the eternal state where people will live forever with God the way that he originally intended it to be. So that kingdom period is kind of like the book of Acts in the uh, church age, if you will. The church age, there's a transition moving from the Old Testament law, the nation of Israel, into the church. And so we see transitory or transition events taking place. Apostles still healing people, uh, speaking in tongues as a sign of judgment to, of the nations upon the nation of Israel. And uh, these kinds of sign gifts, if you will, and they fade out over time. So much so that in uh, one of Paul's letters, he tells Timothy to uh, drink some wine with your dinner to help your stomach. Well, if, if anybody could heal, why didn't Paul just go over and say some kind of magic prayer and heal him? Uh, wouldn't that be better? There was a transition period where even uh, the Apostle Paul isn't able to, to heal people as he was earlier in his ministry. The kingdom is a transition period into this eternal state where we will live with God the way that he intended us to be. The fruit of this tree is giving life, kind of like the river is the water of life. This tree is uh, giving life to people. It's called the tree of life, after all, and it comes from the fruit of this Tree. This uh, tree was in the garden. These kinds of trees were in the garden, or perhaps it was a single tree in the garden. Uh, and it is the one that Adam and Eve were protected from, from eating, if you'll remember, in, uh, after 
they had sinned. Genesis 2.9 mentions this tree of life. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know that they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then they were protected from eating from the tree of life. Otherwise, they would live forever in this fallen state. And God, of course, that wasn't part of God's plan. And so he uh, excluded them from being able to eat from that tree. Genesis 3.22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Revelation 2.7, one of the messages to the churches, uh, Ephesus, they were promised to be able to eat from the tree of life. There is, there is eternal life uh, contained within that fruit of that tree. And notice that the leaves, uh, there's a number of things to notice about this. That, that, that this uh, fruit comes out every month. Eternity is not timeless, as some will call it. It's not a timeless uh, uh, state of being, if you will. It's eternal. It goes on forever and ever. There's going to be months still, according to this passage. So we're not in some kind of nebulous spiritual world without, uh, without time. No, it is time, but it just continues on and on for, for eternity. These trees will bear their 12, their 12 kinds of fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's still going to be nations, it would seem, even into eternity. We saw the kings of nations bringing their glory into the eternal state, into the new Jerusalem, passing in and out of the gates, bringing their glory to the city. Here they're going to be healed. Again, we see similar language in the kingdom period that the nations will be healed in other parts of the Bible, a transition state into uh, this eternal state. And that word that is translated there as nations is actually ethnos, which can be ethnicity. Sometimes it's used to refer to just people in general. Uh, And so... There is some perhaps ambiguity there. Is it describing this healing for just people or is it literally for nations uh, as we think of them? Uh, And the word, the Greek word there is where we get our term therapy. Uh, People and (laughs) the nations could use a lot of therapy today from God's word, not not modern day (laughs) psychology. Uh, In many cases, that's not a good idea. But at any rate, there's a lot of talk in this world today about not having nations. You know, we want to tear down our borders and we want to uh, mass immigration and these kinds of things. And and the nations are bad and and all of this. Uh, And uh, while I, I would agree that nations do bad things, nations in and of themselves are not bad. That was, is part of God's plan for the world. At the Tower of Babel, people were separated into various groups 
And they were sent to, they were scattered around the world into nations. Nations are a part of God's plan. When we see a kind of illegal mass immigration and tearing down of borders and all of this kind of thing, uh, no borders and all of this sort of talk, uh, what's really going on there is a a destruction of cultures. And cultures and nations are not bad. They are not bad things. In fact, uh, they're part of God's plan. All of that is is really an attempt to eradicate nations from the world. And we know from our study of the book of Revelation what's going to happen one day when there is one nation, and it is going to be a rather evil place known as the one world government and one world kingdom. It's going to be held, uh, ruled over by not Jesus Christ, but the Antichrist, if you'll remember. And so this eradication of nations today is really just an, an attempt to bring that to pass even faster. But God is going to deal with these issues and he's going to deal with the healing of the nations, the healing of people through the leaves of this tree in the eternal state. And how exactly is that going to happen? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know exactly what that's going to look like or how that actually takes place. One thing I do know, there is going to be no strife. There is going to be no war between nations. There's, uh, there isn't going to be uh, any sort of problems like that. There's not going to be problems between the different ethnicities of people in the eternal state. We're going to be there together living in perfect peace with the God of peace, Jesus Christ, there. And it will be an incredible uh, existence that we live in. There's still nations there, I believe. Globalism uh, at its heart is anti-God. There's really no, there's no nice way to say it. It is, it is Satan's attempt to establish the Antichrist kingdom upon this earth today. Uh, and if we are kind of struggling and fighting to build a one world government, trying to build the kingdom on this earth, you're uh, fighting the wrong battle. You're doing Satan's work for him because the next kingdom that will be on this earth that's over the whole earth will be the Antichrist kingdom according to the sequence of events that we see laid out for us in Revelation. God's going to heal the nations for us. We don't need to do it for him. And notice the presence that is going to be there. Revelation 22 in verse 3. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more curse in the, the eternal state. As I mentioned before, the millennial kingdom, there will be a, a reversal of the curse, but it's still going to be there. People are still going to die. People are, as we saw in Revelation 20, people are still going to rebel against Christ, even though he's literally physically there ruling from David's throne in Jerusalem. 
uh, people are still going to, to rebel against him because there's still a curse that is there. It will be much suppressed, much less than it is today, but it will still be there. In the eternal state, it will not be there. This curse came about, if you'll remember, or to remind us in Genesis chapter 3, because of sin. And God laid it out to three different beings who were there present at the time, uh, Satan, the man, and the woman, who played a role in bringing sin to this world. Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And here's the, the real key of the curse for him. I Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So Satan's role in this curse is that he's going to try to prevent that from happening. He's going to try to prevent the seed of the woman from crushing his head. And so he's going to actively work in this world in order to, uh, originally we saw, or first, firstly, he tried to pollute the, the uh, genetics, if you will, of the human gene pool by having angels come and bear children with women to pollute the gene pool. Oh, it's got to be a man who's going to do this, the seed of the woman? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll corrupt that seed of the woman so that this can't happen. God took care of that issue with a flood uh, that you can read about in Genesis 8 and 9. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll eradicate the nation of Israel since the seed is going to come from uh, the nation of Israel. So you see Satan working throughout history to try to do that. There's a lot of consequences that come from, from that line of thinking. There was a world war that was fought for one of the attempts to eradicate the Jewish people. That's not the only thing. You see it all throughout history. He's going to try to do it again. In the future, in the one world kingdom, you see mass executions of people who are believing in God. That's going to largely be directed at the nation of Israel uh, also. Not just uh, tribulation saints or Christians, but Israelites are going to be in the crosshairs. Satan wants to keep uh, Israel. Now he wanted to keep Christ from coming into the world. Now his goal is to keep uh, Israel from believing in Jesus as the Messiah. He also wants to keep you from perpetuating God's uh, word of salvation to other people around you. The number one way that he does that is to uh, tempt you to sin, to ruin your testimony as a Christian, because, well, you know, if you're living like the devil, people who live like the devil aren't going to listen to what you have to say about Jesus. And so he wants you to live that way. He wants to destroy your testimony. He wants you to be depressed. 
because of the news that you see going on in the world. He wants you to be depressed about the depravity of this world that we are living in so that you won't be a powerful force for God. So dwell on these things like we talked about in Sunday school. Dwell on the word, dwell on the truth, dwell on lovely things, dwell on the truth of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. And put away the old things. Put on the new man that Paul talks about in Colossians and live for him today so that you can be a force for Christ and a force for good in this world that is still experiencing the curse. Very quickly, Genesis three sixteen to the woman, this curse, God lays it out for them. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So children are not the curse. Part of the curse for women is that it's going to be painful to bear children. Uh, Also, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that last part of the curse for the woman. Uh, A lot of people will say, oh, this is the battle of the sexes that is that is described here in Genesis 3.16. The woman is going to want to take over, but the man is still going to, to rule over her. I think that's a misinterpretation of that. In fact, uh, you don't see women taking over families and this kind of thing uh, until, uh, boy, a, a hundred years ago. And only in Western society do societies, do women kind of have this idea uh, where they can uh, rule over the man and the man is getting upset. And this is kind of the back and forth that people will teach today that that hasn't been the case for 6,000 years of human history. So I don't think that's the right interpretation of what's going on there. And furthermore, you don't see women doing that in other places around the world. That's just not the way <laughs> Life is. Have you ever been to a Muslim country? They literally walk five steps behind their their uh, husbands, and th- this is a curse to the woman, not to the Christian woman. It doesn't say, or to the Israelite woman. It says to the woman, and you can see this playing out if we care to take a look. For six thousand years of human history, her the woman's. Uh, typically, the woman's desire has been to, uh, for her husband and for her family and these kinds of things. And you're going to get stepped on, essentially, is what it says. That's the way it's very much played out in human history. He will rule over you. Uh, enough about that. Genesis three seventeen. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. So the, the, the curse is not work. The curse is that the earth itself is going to fight against you in your uh, work for food. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field, by the sweat of your face, you will eat the bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Forgive me if I 
point out that there's sort of some ingrained uh, responsibilities that are laid out there for us in Genesis 3. Part of the curse for the woman is pain and childbirth. Part of the curse for man is it's going to be difficult for you to feed your family, to feed your wife and kids. The, the earth itself is going to fight against you. There's a very early description of the family that is going on there in the part of the, the cur- what the curse's role in the raising of families is laid out there for us. Uh, the curse has been around for quite a while since the beginning of human history. In the eternal state, that is going to go away. It will no longer uh, be in effect. Uh, and the curse is still here today. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. Romans 8, 18 says that the, that the earth itself is groaning under this curse. Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That glory is being described in Revelation 22. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In the eternal state, there will no longer be any curse. It will be a place of life. And so, of course, one of the, the results of the curse was death. Adam was to return to the earth, to dust, the way where he was created from. He's going to die. The new Jerusalem, the eternal state, will be a place of life and no curse. And so, with that, we're going to leave it right there because I cannot believe how fast the time went by this morning. This is, this is our hope that we have to look forward to. Uh, we are going to live in perfect harmony with the Lord. He is the, the, the river of the water of life will be there. We can have that life today. We can have eternal life today if we will simply trust in the water of life, Jesus Christ, and we can have the absolute assurance that we will be in this place with him for eternity, this place where he will be, where this tree of life will be there bearing its fruit that is for the healing of the nations. And it's going to last just to give it away. (laughs) It's going to last forever. We'll look at that next time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the book of Revelation and the incredible truths that we see here. This incredible truth of life with you forever as it was originally intended to be. We thank you that you are working in this world to remove the curse. Right now we we are under this curse, but we know through faith in you, it doesn't have power over us. We have eternal life. We have the hope of being resurrected to live with you forever. You're, you're, the Bible tells us that if we as believers are absent from our body, if we physically die, we will be with you physically 
Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and we uh, look forward to that. We look forward to this eternity that we will have with you in the new Jerusalem, living in this glorious place, full of glorious life, full of the very glory of God forever. I pray that these truths would motivate us to live for you today and in the days to come, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.